Bibles and turn to John chapter 4, please. We come back to the book of John in our series and our walk through this book on Sunday mornings at 11. And if you are a guest or a visitor, we are slowly, gradually working our way through this entire gospel. And we find ourselves in chapter 4 this morning. I'm going to read a good portion of this chapter. Uh, We're going to read down through verse 29, beginning in verse 1, as it all, uh, excuse me, verse uh, verse 30, as it all relates together, it's part of the same occurrence. And so follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1, John chapter 4, verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? There's a little sarcasm in her statement there. And then she says in verse 12, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh Of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said, said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews." But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? 
The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. We're going to focus on two main things this morning in this passage. There's a lot of different elements that we could draw out of this one particular passage, but we're going to consider uh, just the woman of Samaria and then Jesus Christ himself. And two main thoughts, we're going to consider a miserable Samaritan, but a matchless Savior. Those are the two main thoughts that we'll draw out. But before we get into that, let me start by by uh, stating this, or even asking this question. Uh, you, you probably know this. It's probably not something I would even need to ask. But the question is, do you know that people will pretty much believe anything? For instance, there's a, a poll that was taken on each of these thoughts here to find out the percentage of Americans who believe particular things. And this poll, the question was, uh, do you believe that Elvis Presley is still alive? There's 10% of Americans who actually believe that Elvis Presley is still alive. There was a, another question in that poll that said, do you believe in reincarnation? 30% of Americans said they believe in reincarnation. Here was a good one. Another question was, do you believe in ghosts? 39% of Americans said they believe in ghosts. But get this one. The question was, do you believe that aliens have visited Earth in the past 100, 100 years? 53% of Americans believe aliens have visited Earth. People will believe anything. And then this one, a whopping 74% of Americans believe that the U.S. government is currently involved in cover-ups and conspiracies. I believe that one too. <laughs> I'm part of that 74%. People will believe anything. But all too often, even though people will believe anything, they will stop short of believing the most important thing. People will accept all kinds of theories, they'll accept all kinds of beliefs, but they won't accept what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. They won't believe that. And the fact is, for one reason or another, many people are simply jaded about life, they're jaded about religion, uh, they're, they're jaded about the state of things, they're jaded about troubles in life, they're jaded about people because of their experiences. People will believe anything except the most important thing because of a number of things, a number of reasons in their life. And I say that this morning to sort of introduce the fact that our text today presents to us a woman who seems pretty jaded about life as well. She's been around and around. She's riding the merry-go-round of life, and she seems to be pretty worn out from it. But one day, Jesus Christ shows up and he begins to open up her eyes to the fact that in him, she can have a brand new life, a life that is free from the weight that she currently lives under. 
Jesus takes this woman who's hardened in her life and he leads her to a place of trust in him that leads to a real change in her life. And I want to look at this passage this morning in this light because I think it speaks to people who've grown world weary. People who are sick of walking the treadmill of life day in and day out. And maybe no one else knows it, or maybe no one else can see it on the outside, but they're tired of the way things are on the inside, and they want to change. This passage before us this morning is all about how Jesus made all things new in this woman's life. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus Christ wants to bring someone in this room today to the very same conclusions and the place that he brought this woman to. We're going to consider the woman at the well. We're going to consider a miserable Samaritan, but then we're going to look at a matchless Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take your word, accomplish your purpose with it today. Lord, I cannot see into anybody's heart, but Lord, you do. People can put on a show on the outside and make it appear as all things are well, but on the inside... There's misery, there's turmoil, there's no peace. But Father, you see all of those things. And I pray today, Lord, that your will is accomplished through your word. That every heart would be tuned in, every mind would be focused on what you have from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Consider, first of all, this miserable... Samaritan, And I say that because I want to draw your attention to verse 6. Well, verse 5 says, Then cometh he, that's Jesus, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, I say, consider this miserable Samaritan because verse 6 shows us the misery of her isolation. And I say that because verse 6 is very telling about the, the state of this woman. The Bible tells us here that this basically is telling us that this woman is probably a social outcast. She's probably a social outcast, because I want you to notice that the Bible tells us that Jesus came to sit on this well, and it was about the sixth hour. This is important for us to consider. This woman came to Jacob's well to draw water about the sixth hour. But what we don't know, if you're just reading the text, uh, is that we need to understand that she did not come when all of the other women typically came to draw water. The Bible says it was about the sixth hour, which means it was midday. It would have been the hottest part of the day. It would have been uh, uh, the, the time when, when it was uh, where people would have, would have not been working. Women would have not come to the well to draw water because the, uh, it also, history tells us that this well was probably about a mile away from, the, from her town. The women typically came to draw their water early in the morning, before the sun rose high in the sky. They came while it was still cool in the day. 
often they would come together as well. And they would do that because they would get caught up on the local gossip. They would enjoy a few minutes together uh, themselves as women. The reason this woman came at midday, she picked that time because she thought it would be deserted. History tells us again, like I said, that it's probably a mile away from her town where this water was. Drawing and carrying water for the day would have been hard, hot, sweaty work. The women didn't do that at midday. So why did this woman not come with all the others? Why did she come at midday when the sun was at its hottest? Why did she come when that particular time it would probably be deserted and no one would be there? Well, I think the answer to that is found in verses 17 and 18. The Bible says, The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. I think this is the answer to why she came alone at midday, at the hottest part of the day, when no one would be there. Perhaps this woman was the subject of all the other women's conversations because of the lifestyle that she had lived, because of the reputation she had. Maybe, possibly, some of those five husbands that she's had uh, were, were husbands of these women. She was probably a social outcast. The misery of her isolation... She wasn't accepted in the group. She was probably a subject of their conversation for the kind of lifestyle that she had lived. And it seems that she chose this time because of her isolation. But I also want you to know this. Not only was she a social outcast, but in our text, Jesus goes on to show her that she's actually a spiritual outcast. In verse 20, she said this to Jesus. She said, Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's talking about the difference between Jews and Samaritans here. Verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, uh, worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And you're a Samaritan. Jesus shows her that not only are you a, an, a social outcast, but you're a spiritual outcast. Jesus shows her that you're an outcast from God yourself. And even the little worship that you work into your sinful life is no use to you spiritually. And I say all that this morning, talking about this miserable Samaritan in the isolation of her because she is a picture of every person who has no real relationship with God even though they try to be religious people. Why? Why don't they have a relationship with God even though they have some religion to them? Because the ritual of religion can never fix the sinful condition of the heart. We're outcast from God. 
The sinful condition of the heart separates us from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says it's our iniquities and our sins that have separated between you and your God. And listen, friend, this separation is something that can actually be felt. I'm going to be real honest with you here, and hopefully you are honest with yourself. I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart, and you know your heart. But in our, our sinful condition, we are separated from God. People can put on a show of religion. They can have all kinds of religious exercise about them. They can come to church like all of you are here today. People can do all of these things and put on a, a, a show on the outside and yet still be completely separated from God. And that separation can actually be felt. For example, people try to pray, but God doesn't hear. Maybe you've experienced this. You try to pray to God, but there's this giant spiritual wall that you can actually feel. And you attempt to pray, and you just feel like there's just there's, there's nothing. There is nothing there. There's no communication. There's no connection. And it's just empty words, and there's this wall that just blocks everything off. Useless. People come to church. By the way, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. People come to church. They can't worship in their soul and in their spirit. Maybe that's you. You know there's nothing there. When other people profess the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation, that doesn't thrill you. The truths of God's promises in His Word as we read them, they don't delight you. We can say, oh, praise the Lord. But it's not in the heart. The songs that we sing, they don't grip you for the truth that they portray or cause you in your mind to be focused on God and rejoice in your soul. Nothing happens. It's all a bunch of religious exercises and religious activity, but it's just a show and an exercise of the flesh. It doesn't reach heaven. It doesn't touch the heart of God. Why? Because you're isolated from God. Now, I don't know anybody's heart. Again, there's not any one or two or particular people that I think of or that I'm talking about or anything like that. But God knows exactly what He is doing. And I'm just preaching the Word of God, the message that God has given today. We would all do well to examine our own heart and let the truth of God sink in. Maybe this description of things is actually talking about you. You try to pray, but you know there's a wall there. There's just a giant nothing. And it's frustrating you. And it frustrates you to no end. And you kind of just kind of give up and stop praying. Because I can't connect with God. Have you ever asked yourself why? We sing songs in church. It's just a bunch of routine. It's just ritual. I've memorized them. This is what we do but there's nothing in the soul. 
that is thrilled by the truth of God. Have you ever asked yourself why? It might just be that you're like this woman, still outcast, isolated, separated from God. But he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants to draw you to himself. The thing is, just like this woman, you have got to see and admit what you really are. Because I want you to notice this next thing. I want you to notice the misery of her ignorance. In verse 7 down through verse 26, we won't read all of these verses again, but in these verses what we find is that this woman tries to argue religion with Jesus. But Jesus takes it and turns it back around to the real issue of her heart. And at first, this woman sees Jesus just as another Jew. In verse 9, she says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here she just sees Jesus as another Jew at first. And there was a problem between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds, if you want to call them that. They were were part Jewish, but they were also part Gentile. Whether it was a Jewish mother or a Jewish father and a Gentile father or mother or whatever, the Samaritans were half-breeds. The Jews looked down on them and thought that they were superior. The depth of, of degradation in the Jewish culture to have a conversation with a Samaritan Uh, uh, was, was unbelievable. It was utter contempt between the two. Not just physically, but also religiously. You notice how she said to Jesus in verse 20, Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So here, she's talking about, in verse 9, the physical differences. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, so why are you even having a conversation with me? Then in verse 20, she talks about the religious differences between them. And the subject of where to worship was one of the leading points of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. And we don't have the time to to, to flesh all of that out, but what we do find is that Jesus turns this all around and shows the difference between what real worship is and only ritual worship. In verse 23, he says, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And he's saying it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a Jew. It doesn't matter what kind of ethnicity you have or heritage you have. Uh, in order to truly worship God, it's got to be in spirit and in truth. But I said all of that. How she sees Jesus as just another Jew at first. Then she brings up the religious differences between Samaritans and Jews. I said all of that to tell you that it seems as though she's, what she's doing is simply trying to escape the penetrating and convicting statements that Jesus has just made. In verses 17 and, or 16 to 18, 
Jesus shows her exactly what she is. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Why would he say that? Why would the subject go from giving me some water to drink to her saying, Lord, uh, show me this water so that I don't have to come here and draw anymore, to Jesus going right into, call thy husband. Well, because Jesus knew what she was. And Jesus was going to show her what she was. And it's like Jesus took a full-length mirror in this moment and made her examine her own heart and her own life. He had spoken directly to her conscience, and He was convicting her of her sin. Now, the application here is that this is exactly what needed to happen in order for her to see and admit the miserable condition that she was actually in. She had to be confronted with her sin. That was the issue. It wasn't about ritual. It wasn't about differences. It was about the fact that she was isolated from God because of her sin, and she needed to admit it. But you know what? People often respond the same way that this woman did. When they find themselves being convicted of their own condition, maybe someone in this room is finding themselves convicted right now, but they don't want to admit that they really are. But listen, when a sinner's conscience is disturbed, they instinctively try to throw it off or redirect the focus. That's what she was doing. Where do we worship? And she goes right to this, this religious kind of, uh, of lingo or thought process, and, and she's trying to, to throw off the conviction that Jesus has just brought to her heart. People will do that all the time. You know, which church fits our needs? we got to go to a church that, that will fit our needs, that will, will give us the programs that we want and make us feel good. And, 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 the, and people will talk about all kinds of other religious things and anything but face the reality that they're isolated from God. They want to face Jesus Christ. And the point I'm trying to make here this morning is that many people will die and they will go to hell from the pews of even Baptist churches because they just kept arguing with Jesus rather than admitting what they really are. These kinds of people, they learn how to go to church. They learn to go to Sunday school. They learn how to tithe. They learn what kind of Bible to use. They learn how to live a clean life publicly. They learn many things, but they never learn how to humble themselves before the Lord when He is so graciously calling to them. Here's the bottom line. God said in John 3 and verse 36, look back there please, John 3, 36, this is what God said. Verse 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
That's what God said. Here's the bottom line. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have everlasting life. You, you choose to not believe on Jesus Christ and, and you're not going to see life and the wrath of God abides on you. It's that simple. It's settled. God didn't leave it open to debate. He didn't leave it open to be argued with. He clearly and concretely said and stated that, that this is how it is. You believe on Jesus Christ and you have everlasting life. If you don't, the wrath of God abides on you. You know what? A person can argue with God if they want to, but it won't do them any good. And who are we really to argue with God anyway? The Almighty. Romans 9 20 says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? What right do we have to argue with God anyway? This woman felt the conviction that Jesus brought into her life when he spoke right to her conscience. She tried to divert that by talking about some religious things. And many people do the very same thing when their own heart and their own conscience is pricked about their own personal condition. People can be religious all they want. People can put on a show all they want, but it won't do them any good when it comes to the bottom line. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you really know what that means? Or is there emptiness? And it's just a shell. So we talk about the state or the condition of this Samaritan woman. It was a miserable state. She's isolated. She's ignorant. She needs to be confronted with her sin. And that leads us to this second and final thought, the matchless Savior. I want to focus in on Jesus and His part here. And I want you to understand, first of all, the matchlessness of His grace. Notice verse 4. This whole story begins where Jesus left Judea. He departed again into Galilee. And verse 4 says he must needs go through Samaria. Now skip down to verse 26 because here's the reason why he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. The reason that he went through Samaria was because he needed to meet this woman to reveal himself to her. The Bible tells us that he must needs go through Samaria. Now understand this. Most Jews went miles and miles out of their way to go around Samaria to avoid coming into contact with a Samaritan. They would add many, many miles to their trip on purpose to go around Samaria so they didn't have to walk through it, which would have been much shorter, just so they wouldn't come into contact with Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They were considered to be inferior, an inferior race, because they were descended from Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles, and they had been placed there in that land by the Assyrians. But let me say this to you this morning. Thank God that Jesus doesn't operate like other men do. Amen? 
He didn't care about her ethnicity. He didn't care about her heritage. He didn't care that other people hated her. He didn't care about the ethnic lines that were drawn by ignorant men. Jesus operates in a realm of grace. This fact that he had to go through Samaria just to meet her is evidence of the grace of God. Jesus went to that place. He sat on that well because he wanted to save this particular woman. Even his disciples were shocked by what Jesus had done. If Jesus had acted like any other Jew, he would have passed that woman in her town right on by. But he extended grace to them, and he brought salvation to her that then translated to the salvation of many others. Think about this, friend, those of you that are saved. If you and I got what we deserved, we would have never gotten a second look from God. But you know what? I'm praising the Lord today for a Wednesday night, March 8th, 1995, as a 19-year-old man. When Jesus Christ needed to go through East Grand Forks, Minnesota, because I was there. Praising the Lord for that today. Because it changed my life forever. Thank the Lord that He's come to Black Road Baptist Church today in His matchless grace because He's calling somebody today. To meet you. What grace that God extended for this one undeserving woman. And what grace He's extending today to try to confront you with your need of salvation, with your need of a relationship with Him, to try to show you and open up your eyes that religion and all of the fluff and all of the activity, it doesn't do any good. Do you really have a relationship with Him? He doesn't look at people on the basis of our wretched, sinful condition. That's what we are, and He knows it, but He looks at us through eyes of love and grace. He wants to extend grace and mercy. Oh, He's not blind to our sin, because it definitely separates us from Him. But His grace bridges that gap between us that enables us and brings us to a place where, where we can receive that offer of salvation that He has. Listen, God's justice demands that you and I die. Romans 6.23, the wages, what we've earned for our sin is death. But when justice cries out to be satisfied, mercy from God answers, and God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And now, friend, in grace, He offers salvation to those who would admit it, who would receive it. Thank the Lord for His grace. Amen. The matchless Savior, His matchless grace is, is extended. Salvation is all by God's grace. It's not what you can give or what you can do. 
No, salvation is really about you just simply throwing in the towel and realizing that you're unable to do anything to save yourself. You can't even work up enough faith to believe. That's a gift from God. It's about you trusting Him and His grace alone to save your soul. I think what is amazing here is that even though all the arguments that this woman puts up here, Jesus simply patiently works with her and draws her to Himself. He took her where He found her, gently led her to where she needed to be. He brought her to the place where she saw herself. And then when He revealed Himself to her in verse 26, she was finally at a place where she could believe on Him and be saved. What grace of God. But secondly, we also see his matchless gift. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it was that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Here we see his matchless gift. Jesus promised this woman that He would give her a drink of living water. He promised her that this water would satisfy her in the depth of her soul. This is something this woman never knew. I would imagine this probably appealed to her because of the life that she lived and how tired she was of living it, how she was isolated and she lived this life where she had to go and draw water at the middle of the day because she was an outcast from people. This probably appealed to her. She tried all types of physical relationships to satisfy the need of her soul. They'd all left her empty and thirsty. I want you to note the words in verses 13 and 14. You notice the word drinketh? Look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But then in verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. You notice the word drinketh is used two times, once in verse 13, once in verse 14. It's very noteworthy. Because in verse 13, the word drinketh is in the present tense, active voice. And what that means is that Jesus is saying to her, even if you keep on drinking the water from this well, you're going to get thirsty again. you got to keep coming back to the well. It's never going to satisfy. It might for a moment, but you're going to be thirsty again. you got to keep coming back. However, the word drinketh in verse 14 is different. It's in the aorist tense. It's in the active voice. And what that means is Jesus is saying this, whoever takes just one drink of the water that I'm going to give is never, ever going to thirst again. 
In other words, Jesus is promising that just one trip to the well of life, which is Jesus, will satisfy the soul forever. And here's the application. Friend, you might have tried all there is to try in this life, but you've still found no peace. There's nothing that satisfies the soul. And so you keep going to that, and you go to that, and you try this, and you try that. You know what? I was like that. Even tried religion, but there's still no peace in the soul. You're still empty. You're still unfulfilled. What is Jesus offering you today? He's offering satisfaction and salvation for your soul. He's offering an opportunity to have your sins forgiven. He is offering an opportunity to be right with God forever. The world's never going to satisfy. Drugs, alcohol, sex, entertainments. You've got to keep going back to the well for a temporary fix. But just one trip to the Lord Jesus Christ will satisfy the soul forever. He'll change your life. Listen, what I'm saying is He wants you to believe what the Bible says about Him. He wants you to accept it on the basis of faith. And when you do, He will save your soul. That is why He is a matchless Savior. We are so undeserving. And I'll finish up with this. Verses 28 and 29. This woman got saved. And we know this because verse 28 shows us all of a sudden there's a real change in her Verse 28, the Bible says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? We first see a change in her activity. The Bible says she left her water pot. When she hears and believes that Jesus is the Christ, She's got all that she needs, and she forgets about why she came there. She came there to get some water from the well. Verse 7 tells us that. But now she goes and leaves the water pot, and she wants to go and tell others about the living water that she's experienced for herself. And notice that she tells the men. Why did she tell the men? Probably because they were the ones who knew her best. The women wouldn't have anything to do with her. But I just thought about that for a little bit. I'm like, you know what? That's true. When a person truly gets saved, the ones that know you best are the ones that see the change first. Imagine the change that this must have brought or been for the men. Here she's not looking for a date. She's talking about a deliverer, one who's delivered her soul. They can be like, what? What has gotten into you? How did you change? What, what happened to you? And she says, let me tell you. And the Bible says in verse 30 that they went out of the city and they came to him. Why did they do that? Because they saw the change in her. And they wanted to know for themselves. 
Not only is a change in activity, but we see a change in her acknowledgement. She says, is not this the Christ? I love this part. Where did, she, where did she, when she first met Jesus, what did she think of him? He was just another Jew. Verse 9. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? But notice how this woman moved from not knowing Jesus to eventually proclaiming him as the Messiah. In verse 9, he's simply just another Jew. In verse 11, she calls him sir. In verse 19, she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. But by verse 29, she's reached the place where she calls him the Christ, and she sees him as the need of her soul. How did she go from this progression of almost antagonism to this place of acceptance? She got there because she was gently led along by the Lord in His grace. He brought her from knowing nothing about Him to seeing Him as her only hope for her soul. What a gracious God He is. I know I hated God. I know I didn't want anything to do with Him. I wanted to live my life. I wanted to experience the world. And I found myself empty. I found myself thirsty. It could never satisfy And yet God, in His mercy and His grace, never, ever gave up and started to gently draw until I couldn't resist Him anymore. What a gracious God. And what I'm simply saying here this morning is He's a matchless Savior. No one's like Him. No one can measure to Him. And He might just be extending grace and mercy to you today, trying to show you that you don't have a relationship with Him. Even if you claim to, you may not. Lots of people say they're Christians. Lots of people go to church. But there's lots of, quote, Christians who are still empty inside. They have no real life. Friend, if you expect to ever be saved you got to come to the place where you understand, first of all, that Jesus is your only hope. But you got to admit what you are. And you got to humble yourself before Him. Follow the light that He's giving you, even right now. And the question as we close is, are you saved today? Have you come to the place in your life where you have trusted Him and Him alone And you've just thrown in the towel and you said, Lord, I know what I am. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I need your salvation. If you haven't done that, then you need to. And you need to now. The Lord is trying to draw you to himself. If you'll come to him, he'll save you. In no wise will he ever cast you out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you'd accomplish your purpose through the message, through the word. Maybe, just maybe the Spirit of God is bringing conviction to hearts this morning. Maybe some have been thinking and examining, you know what, I tried to pray, but it just feels empty. There's nothing there. I can't really reach God. In fact, I've never really been able to reach Him. 
go to church, but there's no joy really in my soul over the truths of God. There's nothing that grips me about his promises that causes me to rejoice, to praise him, to love him. I'm empty. Maybe there's one in this room like that, or two. Lord, I pray that there would be a humility, Lord, that that full-length mirror that Jesus is bringing before their face, causing them to examine themselves. Lord, would bring about a place of humility to them where they turn, fall on the mercy of God. Lord, whatever your purpose is, I don't know. But you're extending grace and mercy today to someone. And I pray, Lord, they would respond in Jesus' name. Amen.